Laurie from Boreham Wood in the UK and I'm looking at chapter 24 of Devarim of Deuteronomy. There are a huge number of mitzvot in this chapter, as with the chapters on either side of this one. We cover laws of divorce and remarriage. We cover how to treat someone who owes you money with dignity. We cover timely payment of workers, treating orphans and widows with kindness, ensuring that you set aside gifts for the poor from your harvest. A lot of these mitzvot have a real strong ethic of social justice. I'd like to focus on one specific verse, verse 16, which reads as follows. Lo yumtu avot al banim, uvanim lo yumtu al avot ish becheto yumatu, which translates as fathers shall not be put to death because of sons, and sons shall not be put to death because of fathers, a man should be put to death for his own sin. So there's a strong claim here for individual responsibility, right? And this is backed up by a verse in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 18, verse 20, which reads, The person who sins, he, shall, he, shall, he alone shall die. A child shall not share the burden of a parent's guilt, nor shall a parent share the burden of a child's guilt. The righteousness of the righteous shall be accounted to him alone, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be accounted to him alone. So far, so good. This is very appealing to us as moderns who value ideas of individualism, personal autonomy, and agency. Very nice. Except this isn't the whole story. Because in Shemot, in the book of Exodus, we seem to have some flat-out contradictions and in two heavy-hitting places. Let's look first at uh, chapter 34, verse 7 of Shemot. And I like to call this the bit after the 13 attributes of divine mercy that no one likes to talk about. Because the verse reads as follows. You'll recognise the first bit of it for sure. So this is halfway through the 13 attributes of mercy, which we read uh, so many times, for example, in the Ne'ilah prayer on Yom Kippur, and it translates as preserver of kindness for thousands of generations, forgiver of iniquity, willful sin and error, and who cleanses but does not cleanse completely, recalling the iniquity of parents upon children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Right, that's the bit in that verse which we don't say, um, which is suggesting that children are in fact punished for the sins of their parents and grandparents. And the other place in Shemot which talks about this is actually in the Ten Commandments. This is in chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not prostrate yourself to them, nor worship them. That's meaning other gods. For I am Hashem, your God, a jealous God, who visits the sin of fathers upon children to the third and fourth generations for my enemies. So there you go. Seemingly quite contradictory to our verse in Devarim in Deuteronomy. And faced with apparent contradictions like this, the rabbinic 
impetus to commentary is often to resolve the inconsistency, perhaps argue that we're actually talking about different things and therefore smooth over any potential disunity in the text. And this approach is often very convincing. So some examples in our case, commenting on our verse in Devarim, the Ibn Ezra argues that the seemingly contradictory verse in Shemot chapter 20, which we just read, only applies to children who approve of the sins of the past and adopt them themselves. So only, par only children who continue the sins of their parents and wholeheartedly embrace them is what we're talking about in Shemot. And this seems to be building off a piece of Gemara in Sanhedrin 27b. Another example, Rashi takes from our verse in Devarim a very practical message about witnesses. Um, no one may be found guilty and sentenced to the death penalty based on the testimony of relatives. So fathers shall not be put to death on account of their children. Children shall not be put to death on account of their fathers. That's talking about them giving testimony to the sin of the other. And so by focusing on the legal implications, Rashi moves us away from the potentially more sticky theological ground. There we have it. There are some rabbinic approaches to how we might resolve this. I'd like to propose a bit of a different approach as well to consider, if you'll humour me for a further two minutes. And I think that we can hold this apparent contradiction in, if you like, creative tension by adopting what theologians call a non-cognitive approach to the text. And which I think in this case basically means holding up both positions, the position in Devarim and the positions in Shemot as important influences for the way we live our life. And I'd like to think the way God would want us to live our lives. And so both are important and meaningful. So how does that play out in practice? Well, on the one hand, we should absolutely conduct ourselves as if sons shall not be put to death because of fathers and vice versa. Why? Because justice based on personal agency and ethics based on individual responsibility are critical to a functioning society, right? And so this is what you might call the Devarim 2416 approach. And yet at the same time, we should also conduct ourselves as if God does hold future generations accountable for the sins of earlier generations, because let's face it, it's a reality in this world that our actions have consequences. Parents really do influence the way in which their children are perceived and treated by others. And unfortunately, children can get discriminated against in light of their parents' actions. We're not condoning the discrimination, but we're saying, like it or not, it happens. Be really, really careful about what you do. And if it's not too much of a stretch, phenomena like global warming really reinforce the point that our actions have serious consequences later down the line for future generations. And so that's, if you like, the Exodus 20, chapter 20, verse 5 approach. Act as if God does visit the sin of fathers upon children, because like it or not, that's how this world often works. And so finally, I think as a methodology more broadly, this for me can be quite a fruitful way of approaching apparent inconsistencies in the Torah and in the Tanakh. Now, of course, the huge influence of rationalism and logic on our thinking means that we immediately want to account for or explain away inconsistencies. But perhaps the Torah and the Tanakh is not a text that is best read in this way, but rather 
we might think of the multiple perspectives, nuances and shades of colour as plates that need to be spinning simultaneously for the right overall effect to be achieved. And perhaps it is this that can keep us intrigued by the Torah and motivated to renew our study of it afresh. Wishing you all a great day.